Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 55 for the second half of November 2012. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with the Vist of VIPs, my boss and former dissertation advisor, Brian Heenan, to talk about extraterrestrial life. Dr. Brian Heenick is a professor in planetary sciences at the University of Colorado in Boulder. One of his main research interests is assessing the possibility for life beyond Earth. And somehow, that meant that I completed a thesis project with him on craters. I'm not entirely sure how those relate, but we might talk about that later on. As part of Brian's efforts, he spends lots of time gallivanting around exotic locales on our own planet, studying extremophiles in active volcanoes. In fact, in about five days after we're recording this, he's off to Hawaii to study extremophiles on the Big Island. So, Dr. Brian Heenick, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Nice to be here. It's good to have you on, finally. We've been postponing this for about two months, I think, but... Finally got it taken care of just before you leave for Hawaii. Uh, so before we get really started, your last name is pronounced Hinek, and it's spelled H-Y-N-E-K. But there's a famous person in ufology named J. Allen Hynek, who spells it the same way, but pronounces it differently. And so the question to ask really before we get started with anything else is, is there any relation and if not, have people ever contacted you thinking that there is? Uh, yeah, good question. I, I often get emails or run into people who are curious if I am related to Jay Allen. Uh, we're both of uh, Czech descent, and I'm told, unconfirmed, that he's a distant relative. Uh, but yeah, it, it's kind of odd that we're both uh, looking up and trying to find life out there. And didn't you have an issue a while ago where there was a UFO group that actually wanted to give you an award? Yes, yes. Uh, give me uh, the J. Allen Hynek Award for my search for life elsewhere. But uh, when they understood I was looking for microbes instead of uh, little green men, uh, they, they weren't as impressed. Oh, well. Something yeah. that could have been added to the CV, I suppose. <laughs> yep, next time. <laughs> So then, I guess that bears on the question of what do you actually study in terms of astrobiology? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a broad research program I put together uh, that's in looking at the idea of life on Mars uh, from a variety of perspectives. And I mean, for one, uh, we think at least all life on Earth uh, requires water. So it, a lot of the research has been sort of studying uh, the history of water on Mars and what we can learn about that uh, from the ancient dried up riverbeds that we find across the surface, uh, figuring out when those formed and how long they took to form, how much water, what that meant for an ancient climate of Mars, to studying the, the deltas that are at the mouths of some of these uh, river valleys. And uh, deltas on Earth are a great way to preserve organics and, and signs of life. So these are key targets for Mars exploration. I also study uh, the volcanoes of Mars and, and of Earth. Um, we've been studying the Earth ones lately quite a bit, uh, looking at these alteration products that are formed in the active volcanoes where you have uh, sulfur-rich gases coming up out of the craters, and it's altering the, the surfaces into uh, different minerals and sulfate deposits. And we're finding a lot of these on Mars now, and that's what's driving the research here on Earth and going to places where... We have these acidic conditions and, and a little bit of water there in, in the steam and uh, seeing what the chemical changes are in the rocks and if we can reconstruct the ancient environments on Mars based on uh, the similarities or differences of the minerals. And then we're also studying the extremophiles, these uh, extreme microbes that live within these active volcanic regions and, and live off uh, some of the gases and the chemical constituents that are there. Okay, so... How you, you mentioned water. How do we actually go about searching for life in the solar system? Because there's so much stuff in the popular press that centers around water, and NASA's keep saying, the mantra for, I think, about the last 15 years at least has been, follow the water. 
Um, Object-wise, we've been focused on Mars a lot, but also Europa, and now maybe Enceladus and Titan are also in there. But, you know, for example, on Star Trek, you know, Spock or Data or whatever science officer is your favorite could just scan a planet and say, there's life here or it's dead. What's the disconnect? How do we actually go searching for life? Yeah, yeah, there is a disconnect, and we sure would love to be able to just point our uh, ray at Mars and know the answer, yes or no, definitively, but uh, that's, that seems to be a ways off, and uh, the, the disconnect comes in, uh, you know, we, we know what Earth, Earth life is like and what its characteristics are, and we don't know if life originated on Mars, and if it did, it would have undergone a different evolutionary path, so... There are instruments that we can take to these volcanoes or elsewhere and, and uh, see if there's DNA there, see if there's ATP, the adenosine triphosphate, which is uh, a, a key component of metabolism for all organisms on Earth. But we don't know if, if Mars life or European life would, would actually have DNA. Maybe it has something else uh, that it uses to copy and pass on the information from generation to generation. So uh, NASA... Instead of trying to specifically look for life or, or indicators of life from, from what we know about Earth, they start uh, kind of in, in the back seat of, well, let's look at habitable environments. And those are places that have all the needed ingredients for life as we know it. And the, the needed ingredients include an energy source uh, to drive metabolism, reproduction, uh, some sort of solvent. Water is the obvious one. It's it's what all life on Earth uses. So a uh, big focus of NASA, like you like you stated, was to search for where there was water or is water currently in our solar system. And then uh, the final component between energy and water. Uh, also, certain elements seem to be key in our in our biochemistry. That's that's used by all life on Earth. And these include a source of organic carbon hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. So uh, NASA so far has been looking for the energy sources, uh, especially looking at where there was or is water and where we find these organic uh, building blocks or element, biogenic elements that uh, are, seem to be required of all life here on Earth. So you mentioned that we're looking for three things, basically an energy source, a solvent, and then some sort of uh, organic compounds for life as we know it. On bodies like Titan and Europa, you have really, really low surface temperatures. I mean, Mars hardly ever gets above the freezing point of water. How much slower would chemical reactions there take place? And would this have any effect on life's development and or metabolism? Like, are these realistic places to go to, even if it does have an energy source, a solvent, and other common chemicals? Is it viable for life to exist there? Uh, yeah, in, in my opinion, it's it's viable, but uh, certainly they're not uh, as high of targets for astrobiology uh, compared to Mars. And like like you said, the the cold is is really a problem, and the surfaces uh, there's there's no way we could have liquid water existing on the surfaces of of Titan or Enceladus or Europa. Uh, in the subsurface, sure, but uh, that's much harder to access those areas and to to search for the life that may may be in the subsurface of those planets. And so not only the cold temperature, water is ruled out, which is a, a really good solvent. Uh, the chemistry is just wonderful for for the biochemistry that has to go on inside of our bodies and, and in all life here on Earth. Um, but then, yes, you're reducing the, the speed of the reactions the colder you get. And this drops off pretty exponentially, and, and enzymes and catalysts just really cannot uh, make these reactions move quickly enough uh, to really help out a lot uh, in terms of energy sources for life. So the, yeah, the cold temperature, it's, it's definitely a problem and the subsurfaces are, are great spots to look, but uh, the surface, surfaces of Europa, Titan, Ganymede, places like that are, are pretty dismal in the prospects for finding life there. And so that's one of the reasons why you like to focus on Mars and probably why NASA does in general as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, Mars is the most Earth-like planet in, in its past in terms of uh, a, a thick, dense atmosphere, uh, lots of volcanism, hydrothermal systems, these types of uh, environmental niches that, that were very good for life throughout its history. And 
perhaps even uh, the origin of life happened in hydrothermal systems. And we know that uh, Mars had abundant hydrothermal activity through most of its history. Uh, so, so it's a great place, and also it's close. It's, it's much easier to, and cheaper to send a mission to Mars than to send one to the outer solar system. So it's, it's much easier target to explore. So then you mentioned that Mars is most Earth-like in general, uh, but where exactly on Mars is it most Earth-like, and where on Earth are we most Mars-like? I guess that depends on your perspective. Uh, if you're looking at surface temperature, then Earth's polar caps are most Mars-like. Uh, the, the coldest places on our planet are about the warmest places you would find on Mars. So uh, that's one place that's, that's been studied as a Mars analog, looking at the microbial life that's living in and around the polar caps on our planet. Uh, but from a different perspective, from looking at the geology of the two planets, volcanic environments uh, are abundant across both. So even though Mars doesn't have any active volcanoes, as, as far as we know, it's had volcanic activity throughout most of its history and has produced lots and lots of the mineral uh, rock called uh, basalt. And we find basalt uh, covering our ocean floors, coming up in volcanic uh, edifices all over the planet. So from the geology perspective, perhaps uh, those are, are the best uh, Earth-Mars comparisons. Yeah, I actually seem to recall a paper that uh, someone published recently about showing that Mars has had volcanism at least as recently as uh, tens of millions of years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, some other papers are maybe the same, uh, are showing that individual volcanoes have been active for billions of years through time on Mars. And this this is good for uh, the prospects of, of astrobiology. Not only do you need water there and the ingredients and energy source, uh, it needs to be a long-lived environment. If water was just there for a hundred years or a thousand years, then that would be very dismal in terms of finding life there or preservation of any life that was there. But if Mars had active hydrothermal systems for, say, billions of years, then, then that's much better prospects. Uh, it gives a lot more time for life to originate, take hold, and be sustained in those types of settings. So then, uh, you mentioned that Mars' early atmosphere, uh, we know, or we're pretty sure we know, was thicker and so provided more insulation for uh, perhaps a warmer and more sustained wet environment. Uh, today, though, Mars' atmosphere is very, very thin, something like 1% or less than a percent um, the density at the surface as Earth's. But how much thicker and warmer is the atmosphere at, say, the topographic lows on Mars? Because Mars has a huge range of elevation in its topography. And so would, for example, the bottom of Hellas Impact Basin or the bottom of Valles Marineris, this giant canyon system, be a good place to look for life? just because of the thicker atmosphere. Uh, and you're talking about uh, life at present on Mars, right? Yes, or possibly recently preserved life. Uh, yeah, the, the Mars has, you know, tens of kilometers variation in topography, uh, much like our own planet. And, of course, the top of Everest is cold, and it's quite warm uh, along the oceans. So Mars also would have similar variations, and you can... Uh, model what the pressures would be at the bottom of Val Valles Marineris. And uh, so overall, Mars has about a six millibar atmosphere compared to the thousand millibar atmosphere at sea level here on Earth. And uh, if you go to the bottom of Valles Marineris, it doesn't help you much. Uh, it's, you know, perhaps 10 millibars instead of the global average of six. So yes, it's almost double the atmospheric pressure, but you're still looking at a near vacuum and uh, correspondingly, the temperature isn't going to be much warmer in the bottoms of these places. You know, perhaps you can get toward uh, liquid water temperatures, um, but it's challenging given the extremely low atmospheric pressure. So I don't think it helps you out too much uh, by looking at the low spots on Mars and in the current climate. Okay, so while we're still on Mars and you mentioned climate, uh, there was a very, very recent announcement. In fact, last Friday as we're recording this about no detection of methane on Mars by the Curiosity rover. Now, just so listeners know, there's going to be a future podcast episode that's all about methane on Mars with an interview with Dr. Raina Goh. 
but could you briefly tell us about the significance of methane and the significance of no significant detection by the significant rover? Yeah, sure. Um, so on Earth, in our atmosphere, about 90% of the methane that's there is generated by life. So uh, different animals will give off methane as a byproduct of the reactions that are going on inside of them. Uh, some organisms will actually consume methane as organic matter decays, it produces methane. So finding methane at Mars is, is a, a big question and something that we're interested in, in looking at. Uh, and there were some uh, very, very tenuous detections of methane in the mid-2000s. Uh, there were three different, uh, well, two ground-based telescope op observations of methane at Mars at sort of the 10 part per billion sort of uh, level, which is, is very tenuous and kind of right at their signal to noise. So uh, it was thought that there was methane and that it varied in time and space at the planet Mars. Uh, from these Earth-based telescope observations. And then uh, Orbiter that's at Mars right now, the Mars Express, that's uh, part of the European Space Program, uh, it also has detected very, very faint signatures of methane in, in the atmosphere. But again, it's it's right at the detection limit of the instruments, and so it, it's been a remaining question if, if methane is really there or not. And so uh, the latest rover to Mars, Mars Science Laboratory's Curiosity, which landed in August, has a, a very good instrument on board, a uh, mass spectrometer and gas chromatograph that's able to sniff out very, very uh, faint amounts of methane. I think at sort of the, you know, tenth of a part per billion level, they should be able to detect methane if it's there at Mars. And they, they just made their first measurement to look at the atmospheric gases. So they pulled in some atmospheric gas, ran it through the instruments, and have found no uh, methane presently in the atmosphere right there locally at Gale Crater where the, the rover landed. So uh, in terms of uh, what that means, you know, certainly people are hoping to find methane there since that is a good biosignature, one of these indicators that, that life might be there. Methane can form uh, without life. Uh, if a comet hit Mars in the last hundred years, we'd probably detect uh, uh, methane there, if a volcano erupted or is just slowly outgassing, that gives off methane as well. So it's not necessarily a definitive uh, sign of life if you find methane, but certainly, uh, like I said, most methane around Earth's atmosphere is formed by life and byproducts of, of life. So uh, it was a big question. It, it still remains. They're going to be monitoring the atmosphere through time since uh, some of these telescopic observations have seen changes in the amount of methane in the atmosphere, if, if they're believable or not. So it'll, it'll continue to search for it, and uh, it, it might find it. But uh, finding it doesn't prove there was, there was or is life there. Um, like I said, it can form abiotically. But they, they do have some means to look at the methane at Mars if, if they do find it with Curiosity rover. And specifically looking at the carbon isotopes, uh, methane is CH4. So looking at what carbon isotope, whether it's carbon-12, 13, or 14, and the various abundances of those isotopes might uh, be an indicator of, of whether or not it was generated by life. Uh, we know on Earth, life likes to use the lighter isotopes of different elements, and uh, the, it, it's because it takes less energy to break those bonds and to, to make those, those materials, those molecules, into something useful for life. So on Earth, uh, when we find ancient life preserved in the fossil record, uh, it'll often have enrichments in the lighter carbon isotopes relative to the heavier ones. So the hope is to find, uh, of course, methane at Mars and then look at the isotopes of the carbon and see if we can distinguish between a biotic or abiotic type of uh, origin for this. But the first result has shown uh, that there is no methane at Mars. So that's still an ongoing open question, but uh, the initial curiosity results are, are not uh, looking like there's a lot of methane in the Mars atmosphere. Okay, then let's back up a little bit from gases and, and talk about a little bit of uh, hard evidence, um, as in like actual fossils. Um, so an early potential possible thing that people thought might be a Martian fossil that caused a lot of excitement in the 1990s 
was this discovery inside uh, ALH84001, which is, it stands for Allen Hills, and then found in 1984 in Antarctica, and it was, I guess, the first one. And inside of this meteorite, which was determined to be from Mars, a group of scientists found what looked to be fossilized bacteria. What was all of that about? Uh, right. Uh, you're correct. This was an Antarctic meteorite uh, that was found. So it was blasted off the surface of Mars from an impact uh, some 13 million years ago and landed on Earth uh, maybe 10,000 years ago or so and has been sitting there on the ice uh, in its frozen state ever since until it was found by scientists, uh, part of a NASA expedition down there. And there are several lines of evidence. Uh, you mentioned this uh, potential nanobacteria. So in high-resolution microscopes, you can see these things that do look sort of like uh, little worms. They're segmented, rod-shaped structures that resemble in their, in their shape and form a lot of terrestrial bacteria. Uh, they were a little smaller than most known terrestrial bacteria. Um, but in, in, in addition to these potential microfossils, there were other lines of evidence. There were carbonate globules within this uh, meteorite um, that are, have a lot of iron, magnesium, and calcium-rich carbonate materials. And these minerals are out of equilibrium. And often when we find minerals that are far from equilibrium, uh, that implies a biological origin here on Earth. Um, but then again, uh, if you had a hydrothermal system and high temperature fluids moving through this rock on ancient Mars, then that could, uh, could account for uh, these being out of equilibrium. And then another line of evidence uh, were these PAWS, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, these are complex carbon rings that are found on Earth, typically remnants of dead organisms. But they can be formed organically, and, and some do exist on meteorites uh, that just accreted in the cold solar system near the asteroid belt. So again, not a, a clean indicator of life. And, but they thought they had enough lines of evidence uh, with the potential microfossils, these pods, and the carbonate globules to suggest that uh, life did have a role in, in making this meteorite. And, uh, that was 1996. They made a NASA made a big announcement and had a big press conference and said we have found life on on ancient Mars rock. Um, and then now that more scientists have looked at the meteorite and and scrutinized the data and modeled these things and did experiments in the laboratories, we've realized that um, you know all their lines of evidence for proof of life could be formed without any life at all. So uh, it. It still remains a, a question. People, some people still believe that uh, we have already found life on Mars in this meteorite, but I'd say most of the scientific community thinks the evidence is uh, significantly weakened and that uh, probably an abiotic origin is, is the easiest explanation. Okay, then what about the possibilities of finding actual, I mean, not in this rock necessarily, but finding any fossilized Martian life. Is there any discussion in the scientific community or the scientific literature about the real possibility of finding actual fossilized life? And if so, any macro life? Or has that been completely ruled out? And are we pretty much only looking for micro life? Um, well, to, to put that in context, let me uh, talk about Earth's life and earliest life and uh, what it looked like and what sorts of things we might look for on Mars. Uh, Earth, Earth's life uh, began by 3.8 billion years ago. So within 700 million years of our planet forming, life came about. But it remained microscopic and, and sequestered in the oceans for most of Earth's history. So it wasn't until you know, about a billion years ago that anything larger than a microbe swimming around in the ocean existed on Earth. There were no plants or animals, uh, nothing colonizing the land in, until quite recent times, uh, the last 10% of Earth's history. So even though Earth had early life, it, it took a long, long time before it came macroscopic. And uh, this is in part due to our atmosphere. And until we had a, a nice oxygen-rich atmosphere, uh, and from that, you can get an ozone layer. Ozone's really good at protecting our surface from ultraviolet radiation and, and other nasty things coming in from outer space. 
So until we got a, an actual bona fide ozone layer, maybe a billion years ago, life wasn't able to colonize the land here on Earth. So it was relegated to the oceans. So uh, now going back to Mars, so uh, what would we look for? Well, microscopic life is, is probably, uh, you know, the, what, what we'd expect for an early Mars that had a warm, wet climate and, and rivers and lakes and potentially an ocean. Uh, that could have survived in the subsurface till today if there's aquifers uh, on Mars. But before it would have gotten to macroscopic life, uh, a, a lot of things need to happen, at least in our, our one known case of life, uh, that is Earth life. Um, so I would expect that life would have remained and would still remain microscopic on Mars. And like I said, looking for modern life on Mars, we'd probably want to search the, the waters that are in the crust. Uh, the crust gives you shielding from the ultraviolet radiation and uh, other cosmic particles coming in. So uh, we wouldn't expect life right at the surface of Mars, but maybe in the shallow subsurface if, if there is still liquid water around, and it seems like there, there probably is. Uh, and then one, one final note, um, it's certainly much easier to preserve macroscopic life in the fossil record than microscopic life. And this is why we still debate what's the oldest signs of life on Earth, and, and uh, what's, is it definitive proof or not of life? You know, we look for these isotopic signatures containing the light carbon. Uh, there's some microfossils that are thought to be from about 3.5 billion years ago that are preserved in some rocks on Earth. So even trying to understand the earliest uh, signs of life on Earth and its preservation is, is very tough. And so on Mars, you know, it's certainly much easier to preserve a dinosaur bone than a microbe, these soft-bodied organisms that are very, very small to begin with. But of course, we wouldn't expect dinosaur bones on Mars. Uh, life never got, likely got beyond uh, microscopic in size. All right. Um, actually, before we move on more, there's uh, another question of, has macroscopic life generally also been ruled out in the rest of the solar system? Um, I wouldn't say it's been ruled out. Uh, you know, we're certainly open to the idea. Just on Earth, we needed, you know, 3,500 million years of time before life uh, became macroscopic. So if that's sort of the time scale that it takes for life to evolve into something macroscopic, we would need to look for environments on Mars or Europa or elsewhere in the solar system that, that had conditions favorable for life to be sustained for you know at least 3 billion years of time before it would have likely grown to something macroscopic. So. I wouldn't say it's uh, been ruled out, but it, it does seem like a long shot. All right, then let's move on uh, a little bit back in time to the 1970s. Uh, there were these Viking landers that did an experiment, that had an experiment on board, that according to most people, except for the people who built the experiment, did not detect life. But recently, those results have been debated. I was wondering if you could tell us sort of what's the story there uh, what's going on? Why are these results still being debated? And what do you think that they show? Uh, sure. So I, I think the question uh, is related to the labeled release experiment uh, on, that was on the Viking landers. So two orbiters and two landers went to Mars in the mid-1970s. All components were very, very successful. And the Viking landers were specifically designed to do experiments in wet chemistry to look for signs of life in the shallow soils that were dug up there with the scoop on the rovers or on the, the landers. And one experiment was the label release experiment. And uh, in this case, uh, what was done, they scooped up some soil from the surface of Mars there, and they, they fed the soil organics that were labeled with radioactive isotopes. And the idea was that if, if you have uh, you know, some water, some nutrients, and if there's already life in the soil, then it would feed off of these nutrients, these radioactive isotopes that, that were included on the Viking package. And in the process of their metabolism, they would release these radioactive gases to the headspace of, of the container in which they're doing the experiment. So the idea was to measure the, the gases being released from the soil and see if any of these radioactive gases were, were coming out. And that would perhaps imply that life was there and was metabolizing. And so what they find, uh, well, they found that 
they, there were released gases. Uh, these radioactive isotopes were being released as uh, the nutrients were being used up. And then once the heel was, uh, sorry, once the soil was heated up to 160 degrees Celsius, uh, hotter temperature than any life on Earth can, can survive, then it seems to have stopped, that no longer uh, we're having radioactive gases released. So this uh, seems like a positive result, uh, detection of life. However, <laughs> there was another instrument on board, a gas chromatograph, mass spectrometer, that was uh, sent to look at the abundance of organics in the Martian soil. And this one uh, scooped up soil, looked at it, and found no organic materials at all down to the parts per billion level. So, uh, you know, this kind of goes against the idea that the other one was finding life and that organic uh, material or the little microbes were, were utilizing the gases. And, and uh, it's, it's been shown in the laboratory that uh, you could get similar results uh, with, with totally sterilized soil. So it's been sort of a, a long-going debate of whether this experiment found life or not. Most, most scientists believe it did not, given the other experiments that were on board that, that found no organics at all in the, in the soils of Mars and found a, a really uh, just oxidized, sterilized uh, environment in the soil that really is, is challenging uh, for life. Uh, however, this, this year, um, I think in March, there was a new paper that came out that looked at the results from the labeled release experiment. And instead of looking at uh, the radioactive materials that came out, this was purely a mathematical or numerical analysis of the results. And uh, these, these authors stated that on Earth, uh, complex systems that have biology in them will give uh, complex results. So biology increases the complexity of, of the results from any experiment. And using, again, purely mathematical techniques, they found that analyzing the label to release data from the Viking experiment, it was a very complex uh, result. And these authors said that, uh, you know, that is likely saying that there was life there. Um, but again, uh, they, they were looking at the data only in the sense of the complexity of the numbers that came back. And so it's not really proving that life was there, just that uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a complex result. And uh, further, these authors haven't been able to uh, use their approach and methodologies to distinguish totally abiotic systems on Earth from biotic-led uh, systems on Earth. So. Since this technique hasn't really been well tested on Earth, uh, it's, it's uh, a little hard to believe their results and that they did in fact find uh, an evidence for life on Mars from the labeled release experiment data. Okay, so it's nothing really conclusive and it's more, as you said, just sort of mathematical, theoretical that, yeah, this, this could have detected life, but it still doesn't actually necessarily have any bearing on reality. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, my sense of uh, reading their paper. That uh, you know, it's an intriguing result, but their their methods have not been proven on Earth, and and finding life or no life in, in settings on Earth. So it's it's hard to take it at a full value that they did in fact find find life from the numerical analysis of the label release experiment. All right. Um... Then I have uh, two more questions for you. Um, one of them is about the 2010 announcement of bacterium GFAJ-1, which I'm sure everyone knows off the top of their head, is the um, arsenic-substituting phosphorus bacteria supposedly found in Mono Lake in California. And so this actually, I think, a little bit gets back to what you had mentioned that uh, with ALHA4001, NASA held this big, com uh, big press conference and they said, we found life, here it is, it's this fossilized life. Well, the same thing sort of happened in 2010 with GFAJ-1. They held a big press conference and said, look, we found this bacterium on Earth in this very inhospitable uh, type of environment that substitutes phosphorus in its DNA 
with arsenic, and this has profound astrobiological implications, but then sort of over the last two years, this result has fallen by the wayside. I was curious if you could tell us, sort of uh, give us a summary of what was going on with that, and if this bacteria actually were found, or a bacteria were found to be able to substitute any of the atoms we think are necessary for your DNA with another one, what the implications of that would be for the search for astrobiological or extraterrestrial life? Very long question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so let me give you a little background on this bacterium GFAJ1. So this was isolated out of uh, Mono Lake, California, this really saline-rich uh, lake because L.A. is sucking all the water out of it for making their lawns green. So over time, it's become extremely uh, high in salinity and uh, has a lot of arsenic in it. And certainly there is a lot of life in this lake. Uh, you know, there's like sea monkeys uh, moving around in it, um, but no, no fish and things like that anymore, given the, the extreme salinity of it. Uh, so, yes, a NASA researcher uh, isolated uh, one bacterium from there and found that in all the samples, uh, there was a lot of uh, arsenic. And arsenic and phosphorus are very similar in, in their uh, elemental uh, configuration. And so it's potential that phosphorus could have been substituting or what could have been substituted by uh, arsenic. And of course, phosphorus makes up part of our DNA uh, backbone in all life here on Earth. So if uh, this is correct, then, then it's intriguing because uh, it's telling us that perhaps you wouldn't need phosphorus. Uh, perhaps in an arsenic-rich environment, uh, you could use that instead. And uh, also sort of this canonical idea that all life on Earth has uh, phosphorus in its backbone in DNA, uh, per perhaps that's not true if uh, this, this result is correct. Uh, so there's, there's been a lot of backlash uh, that's, that's come out of this uh, paper. It was kind of, um, a, I don't want to say simple, but a uh, not comprehensive analysis. They weren't even able to prove that there was uh, arsenic in the DNA backbone, just that it always seemed associated with DNA. So they made the leap that it probably was in the DNA backbone. And uh, there's been a number of other studies that have come out since this time looking at the exact same organism, uh, GFAJ1, which coincidentally uh, stands for Get Felicia a Job. The, uh, the NASA scientist is a postdoc uh, named Felicia, and uh, she was hoping that this would get her a, a great job somewhere, having, having found this interesting bacterium that uses arsenic. Are you see, that, that's the actual um, but, name? That's not just a something someone made up afterwards? No, that's what that's what she called this organism. Get Felicia a job, GFAJ. Huh. Uh, so, you know, perhaps a bit presumptuous, but uh, uh, but more recently, people have used this the same uh, strain of bacterium, GFAJ1, and uh, have scrutinized it in, in a lot uh, more comprehensive detail and uh, have, have shown that the arsenic is not in the DNA backbone uh, at all. So... Even though arsenic is nearby, uh, it's not part of the DNA structure. So I think the consensus in the scientific community is that uh, this, this result was a little premature and that uh, you know, even though they inferred that there was arsenic in the backbone, more recent results have shown that this is not the case at all. And uh, I, I believe the more, the more recent studies on, on this, uh, because they did a, a much more comprehensive job of looking at this and detailing it with different instruments and have pretty conclusively shown that arsenic is not substituting for phosphorus within the, the backbone of the DNA of GFAJ1. And so uh, something that you know, we talk about on this podcast is sort of about the scientific process a little bit. And so I'm curious, would you at all consider this um, a failure of the scientific process in any way? Or would you consider... Um, NASA's press office to have done a, a bit of a, I guess, science fail type thing? Or do you think that this is just sort of how science works and maybe it just got a little bit too sensationalized? Hmm, uh, good question. Uh, you know, Carl Sagan said, uh, exceptional results require ex exceptional proof or exceptional evidence. And uh, 
I don't think that they had that when they went to press with this story. They they had a an intriguing idea and a, a possibility, but really I think they should have done more groundwork and and really proven that uh, you know what what they're saying is accurate because it 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 would change uh, how we think about life and what are the requirements of life here on Earth and elsewhere. And so yeah, I, I think they were a little premature in their uh, presentation of results and hadn't done a, a thorough enough job and. Of course, NASA likes to promote uh, big discoveries by their scientists, and uh, that's what they did, and held a big press conference, like you said, and uh, uh, that just uh, led to a lot of anger in the scientific community that, uh, you know, they hadn't really done their homework, but here they're saying that there's, phosphor that there's arsenic instead of phosphorus in the backbone structure of uh, DNA, and so I think a lot of people went after them and with the sole purpose of proving them wrong because uh, they, they didn't believe the analysis that was presented and, and thought it was too premature. Okay. Um, so then I guess changing gears for what I have down as the last question, um, what do you know about planetary protection at NASA? Sort of how it works, what it is, what the rules are, um, and what do you think our actual odds are of contaminating, say, Mars with terrestrial life? Because one of the things that at least some of the, the UFO people who are advocating for alien disclosure are saying is that even if NASA says, well, look, we found life on Mars, they're going to say, well, but it's Earth life. We've just contaminated it. Yeah, yeah. This is a big area of study at NASA. They have a whole agency called the Planetary Protection Agency that sort of looks at the ethics of uh, and morality issues re relating to sending spacecraft uh, with life on them to other planets. And then also when we bring back samples from Mars, how we would deal with those and what sort of facilities we need to not uh, contaminate our own planet if we happen to bring back some Mars life. Um, certainly that's, that's a possibility, I guess. Uh, uh, and so the planetary project Protection Agency, they have different rules for different planetary bodies. And for example, if you want to send a spacecraft to the moon, they don't care at all. Uh, they think the surface of the moon is sterile. Uh, it's, it's extremely dry, except for maybe these little bits of ice deposits at, at the poles. So even if our spacecraft on Earth uh, has a bunch of microbes that hitch a ride to the moon, they're probably not going to take off there just because uh, they wouldn't be able to survive. So uh, they're interested in, you know, looking at bodies where there is a lot of water, where potentially we could contaminate uh, the surface of those planets with, with our spacecraft. Uh, it's almost impossible to scrub off all the microbes that are on a spacecraft. Um, I mean, we send spacecraft to other planets and they have probably millions of microbes on them. And so they're very interested in, in ways to sterilize spacecraft. Uh, but it, it's a tough, tough business because microbes are, are everywhere. Uh, you're breathing in millions of microbes with every breath right now. So uh, they're, they're on the spacecraft and it's hard not to send them to other planets. Uh, but that's a problem, right? If we want to find microbial life on Mars, uh, to prove that we didn't bring it with us is, is a, a problem. And uh, one that certainly a lot of people are working on, uh, how, how to sterilize uh, the spacecraft and also how to detect life that is of extraterrestrial origin versus life that was carried along from Earth. And uh, to give you a, a story here, the Mars Science Laboratory, Curiosity, that, that just landed on Mars, I spent a few years with NASA and a large committee looking at uh, landing sites for this uh, $2.5 billion spacecraft. And because it was not going to be absolutely sterile, we were not allowed to choose any landing sites where there would currently be the potential for water or ice on Mars. Uh, because the idea is this one has a, uh, a radioactive power source. Of, it has plutonium-238 that's uh, generating the, the heat and the electricity for the spacecraft to drive around on the surface of Mars. Uh, and since it was going to be carrying microbes, if, if it happened to crash, and as opposed to the successful landing that it had, if you crash into an ice-rich area or water-rich area, and you have a long-lived heat source, and you carry Earth's bacteria with you, then it's likely those things could, could thrive in this warm puddle that uh, is the spacecraft wreckage. 
So uh, even though this mission is designed to go to a habitable spot on Mars and look for signs of life, we weren't allowed to send it anywhere there could currently be water or ice, which would be the places we'd want to go to find life. So kind of a catch-22 there. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's, it was uh, guidelines put in place by the Planetary Protection Agency because if we do find life on Mars, we certainly don't want it to be something we brought from Earth. And this is help, helping uh, keep Mars clean, uh, so to speak, and, and try not to introduce life uh, on that planet. So we had to land in a place with no water and thus uh, some, somewhere that the bacteria that we carried to Mars were probably not going to take off and, and terraform Mars. Uh, to, just to give some rough idea, how sterile is, say, Curiosity or any other kind of rover that we would send to Mars versus, um, say, hospital equipment? Ooh, good question. Yeah, I just thought of that one. <laughs> uh, I'd say they're they're probably pretty close in how uh, clean they are. So certainly they, they do try to do a very good job of, of cleaning the environments. But, you know, just the atmosphere is carrying a lot of microbes around. And we're certainly sending atmospheric gases inside the belly of the rover to Mars. So, um, yeah, it's extremely sterile, you know, millions to billions of times more sterile than, you know, just picking up a rock on the planet uh, Earth. But uh, still, uh, you know, some things did hitch a ride, and, and uh, I think they're right in uh, not allowing uh, the Curiosity rover to, to land where there was water or ice. Uh, you know, it's a ethical or morality question, but uh, we, we don't want to feed life to Mars. We want to look at it in its pristine state and, and try to find what life is there. And uh, there's a story that came out, uh, one of the the camera lenses, or sorry, the, the drill bits uh, that are on board Curiosity. These were uh, clean, sterilized, uh, heated up to very high temperature to try to kill any life that was on them. And they were packed away in a very sterile box that once the Curiosity rover got to Mars, it was supposed to open that box and then take out a drill bit so it can drill into the rocks uh, that are on the surface there. Well, some of the engineers uh, in the late stage testing decided that uh, the shaking of the spacecraft might might uh, disturb this process of loading the drill bit into the drill on Mars. And uh, so they opened it up and they took one out and they preloaded it on the arm of uh, the Curiosity rover. So of course, opening that up uh, took away all that, that very precise cleaning and sterilization. And uh, so, the Planetary Protection Agency has, has not been very happy about this, from what I understand. Uh, the engineers are not supposed to open this box and on Earth and uh, load up a drill bit. But they thought, uh, you know, better to have one in there, even if it's contaminated, versus not being able to do this on Mars at all, because uh, the drill is a pretty important piece of equipment that's on the rover. But uh, since that time, the Planetary Protect Protection Agency has, has told the Mars Science Laboratory scientists that if they do happen to find ice or water, that they cannot go up and examine it. So if there is ice uh, that could be found there, which, which is a possibility, uh, we wouldn't even be able to go up and look at it, uh, given that the instrument is no longer clean and up to the specifications that were laid out for the mission. So uh, a problem if we, we do happen to find a puddle or, or some ice deposits there, uh, we probably wouldn't be able to go up and actually look at those. Well, actually, sort of uh, related to that, uh, I think there was an issue with the Phoenix lander where it was something about how the arm or the, the end of the arm had been sterilized properly, but the spacecraft itself hadn't been sterilized the same amount and that the arm went up and touched the spacecraft and so planetary protection wasn't going to let them go back and dig. But then they said... Well, because it's been sitting in a high UV environment for three months, it's okay. And I was wondering, maybe, could they leave the box of drill bits open and, say, in three months, be like, yeah, it's it's been irradiated, so can we go ahead and get a new one? Is that at all feasible? Uh, that, that could be feasible. And it'll be discussions between the Planetary Protection Agency and, and the mission team. Uh, um... 
certainly the surface of Mars is is a pretty good sterilizing environment and should kill uh, most things that are that are here on Earth. But their stance as of president, that is, uh, president, the Planetary Protection Agency is saying that if if you do find ice uh, too bad, you'll have to turn the rover around and drive away from it. So uh, currently, their their stance is that uh, we would not be able to to do any analysis of that if if it would happen to be found, uh, you know, which is a fairly low possibility. All right. Uh, well, I think that actually wraps up all of the questions that I had. Uh, is there anything else that uh, has sparked an idea that you thought would be worth discussing, or uh, is that about it for you? I think that's about it. Uh, we focused a lot on, on Mars. Uh, certainly Europa would be a, a great place to go and, and look for life. Uh, has a subsurface ocean. That's uh, pretty definitive evidence for that and probably has energy sources and uh, heat sources, liquid water, organic materials uh, there in the subsurface ocean. So, you know, it's a, an amazing place to, to go and look for signs of life beyond Earth. But of course, you have about a 10 kilometer thick layer of ice on top of the ocean. So it's not as accessible as, uh, say, looking at soils or uh, rocks on Mars. Um, you'd need some sort of drill that could drill down through the ice or something that melted its way through the ice to get down to this uh, liquid layer that we think is underneath. Um, but certainly it's a great, great place to look, just uh, far more challenging than, than scrutinizing the surface of Mars. Well, then I guess that's about it, and I will thank you for your time. All right, uh, thank you, and uh, my prediction is uh, in our lifetimes we will find definitive proof of life on Mars. Uh, I think it's got to be there. There's was this uh, warm, wet environment early on, right at the time when Earth's life was taking hold and coming about, and there's still uh, shallow aquifers in the subsurface today that have probably been there throughout time. And so there is liquid water uh, not, not too deep down, maybe just 100 meters or two that occasionally flows out on the surface. And my guess is that uh, there are some microbes that are sitting in there, and uh, we just have to come up with uh, novel ways to find them. Like I said at the outset, uh, we only know about life on Earth and, and what it contains uh, in terms of, say, DNA or, or uh, what, what elements it uses or what sort of chemical processes it does to sustain itself. So uh, we have to sort of be not Earth-centric and, and be open to the possibility that Martian life might look totally different than Earth life. And uh, we have to come up with smart ways to try to detect that and, and conclusively prove that it was from Mars. But uh, in my opinion, I, I think it is there. Uh, certainly was there in the past and very likely would still be there today. And uh, it's now our job to go and find it. Actually, I guess uh, one final question then related to that is uh, something that I ask uh, guests who talk about some specific pseudoscience thing, like a hollow earth, is if you were to get into a room with people who believe in the hollow earth and they had to answer a question of yours, what would you ask them? And I guess for you, if you were to get into a room with, um, I don't know, say Richard Hoagland, who vehemently believes that there was an ancient civilization, intelligent, Earth-like civilization on Mars in the past, and they've left all these ruins, and you were able to ask him a question that he had to answer, what would it be? Uh, I guess my question would be, uh, how is Mars life so much uh, faster in its evolution than Earth's life? You know, Earth is a pretty great spot for life. We've been in this habitable zone our entire history, and it took, like I said, billions and billions of years before we went beyond microbes on our planet. So how could, uh, you know, in a few hundred million years on Mars, could you have developed and evolved an uh, intelligent form of life? Uh, that seems quite far-fetched to me, and I'd like to know uh, his thoughts on how life could have evolved so much quicker on, on Mars versus our own planet that seems more hospitable in a lot of aspects through time. That'd be uh, an interesting question, uh, probably an interesting response if he actually had to answer as opposed to just walking away. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thanks again. Uh, thanks for about uh, an hours of your time, and uh, talk to you later. All right, sounds good. Appreciate it. All right, thanks.
thanks again to Dr. Henick for spending time with us and coming on to the podcast. Now, given that this episode is almost an hour long as it is, but because of the new schedule with Puzzlers, I'm going to go over the Puzzler for last episode, and I'm going to ask a new one for this episode. So the scenario last time was this. One hypothesis that has existed is that there's a planet Vulcan interior to Mercury, or perhaps a population of asteroids called the Vulcanoids. So far, no one has discovered any of them. Given that Mercury is so difficult to observe from Earth, how can we go about trying to determine if such a planet or population of asteroids exists? Congratulations goes to Jan, who was the first to send in a viable method, actually methods, plural, with honorable mentions to David, Patrick, and Leonard. Jan's idea was to observe the orbit of Mercury because any planet should perturb it if one exists, which actually historically was what was thought to be evidence for a planet Vulcan in the first place. That was until Einstein came along and explained that the tiny perturbations that were not due to known planets were in fact due to general relativity because Mercury is on a highly eccentric orbit and it gets relatively close to the Sun. Another idea of Jan's was that the Sun would also wobble very, very slightly, similar to how we detect extrasolar planets. But he's right in that it's probably so minute that it would be undetectable, at least with current technology. A third method he suggested is that it would likely transit the Sun, Just like earlier this year, in 2012, we had the transit of Venus, and a few years ago we had the transit of Mercury, and I believe in two years, in 2014, we'll have another transit of Mercury. So, at least as far as we've been observing the Sun for maybe 200 years or so in any detail, we have not seen any transiting planets that we don't know about. David wrote in to suggest that objects interior to Mercury could be visible during a total solar eclipse, and also that Mariner 10, when it swung by, may have been able to see a vulcanoid asteroid, that is, Mariner 10 swinging by Mercury in the 1970s. Now, this is less of an ideal solution from Jans, because Mariner 10 did not really do any type of thorough survey for vulcanoids. Patrick's ideas were along the same lines, but slightly different. He suggested using a solar-observing spacecraft to look for transits but recognize that there would be a lower limit of detection possibility. Similar to the eclipse idea of David's, Patrick suggested that you could also use an occultation disk to block the sun to search the space nearby, kind of like you somehow see SOHO images of the solar corona or comets crashing into the sun because there's an occultation disk that blocks out the brightest part. He also suggested general surveys from Mercury orbit or Venus orbit although you'd need a lot of time and many repeat observations to really rule anything out. It's very hard to prove a negative. Leonard suggested the same idea, or at least the same basic idea, of watching for transits, but he also pointed out that if any population of volcanoids existed that were a few kilometers across, they probably would have been found by now, based on all of the sun observations that we've done over the last two decades of spacecraft. One thing that no one brought up was a story that I read maybe a decade ago about very high-altitude airplane surveys from Earth, obviously, with airplanes. The researchers would use an infrared telescope because the sun is relatively dark in the infrared. They'd then fly the plane just the time that the sun sets below the horizon and scan the sky near the sun, well, near the setted sun or set sun, for any object once they're above a large chunk of Earth's atmosphere. Those surveys turned up nothing. So those are various ways to search for these kinds of objects, and so far, we haven't found any. So it's probably true that Vulcan, or Vulcanoids, do not yet exist. But the term is still reserved, and we can't use it for any other object until one may or may not be found interior to Mercury. This episode, with the main segment on astrobiology with Dr. Brian Henick, the puzzler actually comes from Dr. Henick himself. If we were to design a mission to another planet today, what type of mission, lander or orbiter, and what type of instruments would be best to make what kinds of measurements to try to detect microorganism life, assuming it's life as we know it? Put another way, 
you, as in you the listener, are put in charge of planning a mission to search for life as we know it on another planet or moon. What kind of mission would it be? What kind of measurements would you need to make? And what kind of instruments would you need? You don't have to answer all of these parts to submit a partial response. Think about it, especially while the American listeners are gorging themselves on turkey, and send your ideas to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode on December 1st. The December 1st episode, episode 56, will be about photography claims of the Apollo moon hoax, part 3. So if you have any ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send them in. That wraps up this topic for, what are we on now, uh, 55, the 55th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. I actually learned quite a bit in this episode. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use, one, the feedback form on the website, two, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, Three, love a comment or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for this podcast. Or six, send a tweet to at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. And, as I said, while the American listeners are gorging themselves on turkey this week, why don't you share this podcast with your family, friends, or if you happen to be alone this Thanksgiving, then share it on the internet to two random strangers.